0: The direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin.
1: So, what about tools? You took some with you. Did you make any tools while you were there, and what were they? I really
2: didn't make any tools, uh, because I pretty much had taken what I felt like I would need. Uh, the only thing that I really got crafty with, uh, I made a fish basket that was about seven feet tall and probably two and a half feet across. It was, it was pretty sizable. And then I made a few traps, uh, fish traps and bird traps, things of that nature. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't get real crafty. I kept my shelter small, you know, I just conserving energy. And That's another thing when people think about shelter, they, they think of some huge log cabin or a teepee or something like that. But really when, when you think about shelter, what you want to think is, okay, I'm going to build a glorified sleeping bag. That's what I'm after, something that's tight, something that's going to have really thick walls and good insulatory properties, lots of dead air space. That's the key is dead air space. And enough to maintain my core temp and and not be fire dependent. And, you know, one of the ways that the human body loses heat is through conduction. So even if you build a really nice shelter and you go inside and you lay your body on that cold ground, uh, that's going to predispose you to hypothermia. So one of the keys is to build a mattress to put something between you and the ground. You can start with limbs and then get smaller and finer as far as the size of those limbs so it has a little bit of springiness, a little elasticity. Uh, you could incorporate moss in some areas of the world. You could use grasses. Here in the mountains, you would, you're would you going to probably be using leaves because we have a lot of those laying around. Uh, just something to get like four to six inches of dead air space between your body and the ground. That's essential.
1: What do you do in, in a sleeping arrangement like that where you're sleeping not on the ground but near the ground? What do you do about animals like snakes or the like that might cause you problems?
2: Uh, it's, it's just like a good restaurant. It's all about location. So when you before you even build your shelter, you, you really should look your area over uh, very intently, and you're looking for things like that. Are there any signs of, of insects? Do you see yellow jackets coming and going out of a hole near there? Uh, you want to look above you. Are there any trees that may fall out or break in high winds that could cause me damage? Am I in a game trail? Are there signs of, you know, is there bear scat around here that looks fresh? If it's still smoking, you might want to keep walking and camp somewhere else, you know. So, uh, yeah, you do your you do your due diligence on that. But, I mean, once you're out there and you're sleeping as far as avoiding animals, uh, once you get your scent around there, they're not out to get you or anything. So the the big thing is how you handle your food. You you, you don't want to, like on the island, I never ate where I slept. You know, that's just something I didn't do. I would go down and eat on the shoreline. So the scent the remnants of shell fragments or whatever you know the smell was not out of context it was down at the sea where it belonged and then I would go back to the secondary camp that I built where I would cook my food and I would boil the pot out to get rid of any residual odors in the pot plus the second uh, benefit of having some water boiled up for later by the time it cooled down you know I would have a little water in reserve and I would use that smoke to mask any of the residual scent that might be left on me and then to avoid ambush from cougars, what I did is I would take a different route back to my base camp every time. I never did the same thing twice because cougars are very calculating and very patient and methodical, and they have the ability to to plan and plot and reason, and that's what they do full-time. They're masterful hunters. They'll watch you for weeks, and if you establish patterns, then you're going to get ambushed. And so... I would always go down and eat with my back to the ocean so that I could see everything on the beach if anything was approaching me and just be really vigilant about what you do with food and as it relates to your sleeping area.
1: We're talking with Alan Kay, local survivalist, winner of Alone on the History Channel. Um, You had an interesting time out there. Um, You had some encounters with a bear, I understand. How did you handle that?
2: I did. uh, There was a bear that lived about 100 yards from where my camp was. He had his den. It was the most prominent terrain feature in that area. There was a hill, and he had his den there. And we met each other a couple times, you know, coming back and forth from the water, but it was never anything threatening. You know, I gave him his space, and I never invited him to dinner. You know, I never rang the dinner bell, so we we really didn't have any issues. Uh, My third night there, I had wolves come, and they were just scratching around my shelter at night. And it was there again, nothing threatened. And it was more like, "Hey, who's the new guy that moved into the neighborhood?" So I never felt uh, that my life was in peril from any of these animals up there. It's just understanding the animals, understanding their behavior, and uh, giving them plenty of space. You know, not doing anything that's going to create a situation where you feel threatened.
1: You know, a lot of people, when it comes to being prepared, uh, tend to think too large. Wouldn't you say?
2: I think so. I think uh, sometimes we, we tend to overthink it. I mean, preparation is is key, and of course, it depends on what degree of preparation you're talking about. If you're if you're preparing for your community, then then some things are going to be large. You should have, in my view, you should have some pretty serious food storage. Uh, if if you look at history, you know why would you not have food storage? We've got insurance on everything else, you know. So how about some? belly insurance to make sure you're going to have something to eat because there are crop failures that can happen there there is as we talked earlier about venezuela you know there's empty shelves there now and looting of stores and violence over resources and food and you know it it could easily happen here or or there might be some some other situation that that would put things in short supply even a disruption in the supply and logistics of how things get to the shelves or in the instance of Greece, you know, not – it could be economic in nature. It might be people's ability to, to finance the purchase of the, the critical items, such as food and things. And so, I mean, history is a great teacher, and we've seen it all over the world. And uh, like I said, we're not an agrarian society necessarily anymore. Uh, I think locally we have a pretty good bit of agriculture. But if you really look at, okay, how do we achieve that goal – we use tractors, we use tillers, we use fertilizer, fuel, trucks, all of that stuff. If you were to take that out of the equation, how many people would know how to do it the old way? I don't know how to plow with a mule, so, you know, it's it's something to consider.
1: Well, you know, food storage really was is even mentioned in the Old Testament, as you know. Mm-hmm. When Joseph and Pharaoh, when Pharaoh had the dream about these seven fat cows being devoured by the seven thin ones... Joseph interpreted that, that you're going to have seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, and Pharaoh put away a whole bunch of food. Mm -hmm. And the Egyptians were able to survive uh, through those seven years. So you're right. We have not only in our history, but also in the history of earth, and even in our teachings in the Bible, we know that preparation for the future is something that's very important.
2: It is. Uh, and there's a lot of lessons in that. If I, if I can recall that story correctly, I think that they approached him to buy grain and they started paying with what they had. And when they were out of money and they weren't able to pay in that way, they gave up their lands. And so the government at that time ended up owning their lands. And then in the end, they ended up owning the people. They, they came back and actually offered themselves in servitude in exchange uh, just for sustenance. So, there's a, there's a lesson there. You know, if you if you can't feed yourself, you'll be at the mercy of those that can offer you the food.
1: And, and that's very true because that's one of the things we always are concerned about. You know, around here, this is a a society where people do have that tradition of planting gardens. And then canning the canning the tomatoes and the beans and the whatever, even meat mm-hmm. and a lot of the older folks around here grew up doing that as a way of life every single year of their lives, and all winter long, they ate what they grew over the summer and harvested in the fall
2: that's true, and when you look look back to the Cherokee, even they uh, became an agrarian people uh, with what they called the three sisters, the corn, beans, and squash, you know. So they didn't strictly hunt. They, that was supplemental. You know, they, they trapped. They foraged. They foraged. Uh, they, had, they had fields and agriculture. And they were a very uh, prosperous and advanced society, even had a written language. And, and I think part of that is, is due to the fact that they did have some, some agriculture. You know, it enabled them to do some of these other things.
1: I I know that you've spoken about the the difference in terms of success uh, and efficiency of hunting versus growing. Would you like to talk about that?
2: Well, like as far as hunting, you know, anybody that's ever went for a hunt will tell you 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 don't always come back with meat. So if you're in in an actual survival situation and you go out and you spend time and you spend energy and you come back empty-handed, now you're at a deficit. And if that continues, you're not going to make it. And if you talk to some people from here in the mountains that remember back in the 1930s and and even before that, what I'm told is that there were not any game animals here in the mountains. You know, the only reason we have them now is, you know, not everybody's out there for their subsistence, you know, trying to to get a hold of these animals to eat. And so the herd, you know, a lot of these deer were brought in and they were managed and that's why we have what we have now. If everybody, if you look at the population density nowadays versus back then, if everybody's out there trying to trap, hunt, fish, duh, the land will not sustain it. You wouldn't be able to find a songbird around here. Everything would be hunted to extinction. So it's just not realistic to think that you're going to hunt as your mainstay. You know, sure, you'll get some meat in the pot now and then, and it's supplemental. But a plant's not going to run from me, and I don't have to club it in the head so I can walk up. And I can, I can benefit. I can, I can have a meal. We could go outside right now and make a salad. And uh, the energy derived from that effort would, would definitely offset the energy that we put into it.
1: I think that's really an important point to understand is that uh, from a population point of view, the reason we have animals now, okay, here is because we are not just free hunting we don't have everyone with a rifle is not out shooting deer 365 days a year. You're right; they wouldn't last that long. They'd be gone, right. as well as fishing in the uh, fish in the, in the lakes and in the creeks. So we can survive now because we have people growing food for us, basically all over the world. And like you ma- like you mentioned, of course, that's from an energy point of view, really inefficient. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless. That's how we can support our population here now.
2: Yes, and it's, it seems to me that it's very fragile. If you look at all the complexity of that system and all the moving parts, and it seems like all the supply and logistics is just right on time. And if there's any hiccup along the way, then you get this domino effect. And we've seen that. I mean, there are a lot of places in the globe right now where things are not well. You know, people are, are not getting enough to eat there's there's it might be political chaos that's causing the shortages of food uh, you know in some places in Africa it's like that the warlords uh, they they get a hold of all of that food and they dole it out you know as they see fit so it, it could be a lot of things it could be political in nature it could be socioeconomic it could be natural disaster uh, but at the end of the day human life is water shelter fire and food that's it just the basics
1: And so you bring up an important point, Alan Kay, that we are really living in very perilous times. When you have a planet with over 7 billion people on it, Mm -hmm. it is just truly amazing that even now we can produce enough food to feed most of them. We're not feeding all of them, but we're feeding most of them. There are plenty of people, you know, dying of hunger all over the place uh so this is a not only from is it from an econ- economic point of view it's fragile mm-hmm. from ecological point of view it's fragile that's true but also from a uh a discontent from a uh, military from a uh safety point of view it's an enormous risk that we are now under because you know that hungry people are not happy people and they will do whatever they need to do to get food
2: that's true yeah i mean we definitely do live in perilous times i think that's one reason that preparedness has gone mainstream people look around at the the state of the world and i mean where is our current debt at what are we 19 trillion absolutely
1: and climbing
2: in debt Now, if you and i were in debt proportionately as an individual to that extent that's it's a wrap (laughs) it's over so uh I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm, I am a student of history and, and a little bit about economics. And my study of both convinces me that, uh, clock's ticking.
1: I would agree with you. And that's why individual responsibility and individual preparedness is such an important thing. What do you carry with you all the time to be prepared?
2: You know, you touched on a really good point there. Um, it is important to be prepared at the individual level because strong individuals make a strong community. If we have a bunch of strong, resilient individuals and we have a strong, resilient community, and so many people, it seems nowadays, they look to the government for answers, and that's not what Americans have always been about. We've always taken care of ourselves and each other. So for me, that's that's really the big shift instead of uh looking to politics you know to to solve our problems we the answer is each other you just look around the room uh, get to know your neighbors that community you know i've got a thing that i tell people uh the lone wolf is the dead wolf because it, it just doesn't work that way you know we have to get back to a sense of community and helping each other
1: that really is what we have always had as a tradition in our area here Mm-hmm. Uh, neighbors helping neighbors. Your church is the center of your community, uh, and so that's why a lot of people here are are into preparedness. But more than that, they understand the importance of being individually prepared, family prepared, community prepared, and church community prepared. That's how people survived here for generations. And I don't think it's quite died out here as much as in Atlanta. Let's no, say. that
2: that's true, and it and it has served us well uh, historically. If you look, that's there's been a lot of success stories there, and I've done a lot of survival classes for for some local churches. You know that are are taking it serious, and uh, they they do feel like there there's a stewardship there that they have of their communities, and that is a bastion. You know that we can have a place. You know, if you've got somebody that's down, that was the original uh, social services. It was, it was the church. It was the community. You know, people were aware of the situation. Okay, this person over here has this need. They would come together and fill that need, and that's as it should be. Um, you had asked about what I carry every day. I've got a, a pocket survival kit. Uh, it's made out of a, a small metal container uh, made by BCB. International, it's the same one that the British SAS carry. It's called a BCB Mini Mess Tin. If the listeners want to look that up, you can get a get a visual of it. But it, it's about the size of your hand, and inside of that container, I usually keep a Mylar shelter sheet, which is basically a portable blanket. It's, it has a reflective quality. If you were to put it uh, in front of a fire, it would bounce that heat back to you. I have a couple of ways to start a fire in there, a couple of ferro rods, boat matches, things like that. I keep a compass, a whistle, uh, needle and thread, fish hook, sinkers, line. I've got uh, some tinder for starting a fire in there. I've got 28 gauge brass wire. Just lots of stuff. I've got water purification tablets. I actually have a water filter in there. And I know when you look at this can, it doesn't look like it would have all of that, but it does. And then even the the container itself, being a metal container, you know, I can boil small amounts of water in this if I had to. And I could even cook small amounts of food in it.
1: Well, when you described everything, I'm I'm sitting here looking at it, and it's about maybe five inches by three inches by maybe an inch and three-quarters to two inches. Everything you described sounds like it should probably fit in a backpack. Right. There's
2: actually two saws in here, too. I know that sounds impossible, but there are two saws in here, and one of them will cut through metal, bone, and wood. It's a specific type of
1: collapsible so and so from a from a functional and efficient point of view that's something that you can carry with you hundred percent of the time mm-hmm. and really no matter what happens uh, you've got the basis for survival in a tin can
2: that's exactly right and so for me I usually wear cargo pants and it lives in the my leg pocket you know uh, for ladies it could be put in the purse you know, I've, I've taught a lot of classes in and that's, and ladies like having that for, if something happens, they have their kids with them, you know, you'd be able to keep them warm, get a fire going. And also medical kits on, on my opposite leg pocket, I keep some medical equipment with me that that'll handle most trauma. And, and it's, it's not very bulky, uh, just a pressure dress and a tourniquet, things like that. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's freedom forum. Join the battle on our website www.drdansfreedomforum.com The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. <laughs>